0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, Aaron O'Toole is the new leader of the Federal Conservative Party of Canada. Can he beat Prime Minister Trudeau? Grocery prices continue to rise during the pandemic. What's the reason? The Raptors' momentum continues. They have swept the Brooklyn Nets in their first round of the playoffs, and the coach wins coach of the year. Not bad for a Toronto team. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Aaron O'Toole is the new leader of the federal conservatives. I used to love his restaurants. no, no, no. no. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: different O'Toole. He swears that one day he was there and it was his birthday and they put something on his head and all saying happy birthday to him. No, it's a different, it's not the same, I I, I, I don't even know if there is an O'Toole with o, O'Toole's restaurant. Uh, anyway, it is 12-11, uh, it's 1211 its 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. It is week number 24. All right, if uh, you stayed up late for uh, what is obviously just uh, edge-of-the-seat television when it, comes to, <laughs> when it comes to drama, and that is the uh, Conservative Convention, which was last night, and Aaron O'Toole has been selected leader in the third, on the third ballot uh, of the federal Conservatives. Here is a montage of some of what he had to say last night or the, earlier this
1: morning. To the millions of Canadians that are still up, that I'm meeting tonight for the first time? Good morning. I'm Aaron O'Toole. You're going to be seeing and hearing a lot from me in the coming weeks and months. But I want you to know from the start that I'm here to fight for you and your family. Because I believe that whether you are black, white, brown, or from any race or creed, whether you are LGBT or straight, whether you are an Indigenous Canadian, or have joined the Canadian family three weeks ago or three generations ago. Whether you're doing well or barely getting by, whether you worship on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays or not at all, you are an important part of Canada. If you are proud of what we produce in this country, whether it's the resources in the ground or the ideas in our heads, you should be voting Conservative. And if you believe deeply like I do, that you need an ethical government and that we need to give the ethics commissioner a break, you should be voting conservative.
0: All right, that is a sample of uh, the acceptance speech last night or earlier this morning, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada electing Erin O'Toole on the third ballot to be party leader. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well.
2: I am, Scott. Thank you very much.
0: So, uh, we know that you, uh, of course, approved of uh, Aaron O'Toole. He was your favorite. Your thoughts, yeah. considering what we've seen?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, obviously, from a personal point of view, I'm obviously happy that, uh, cons- that Tory supporters have chosen well and chosen wisely, as I said last night, and they really did. They basically picked the only one of the four candidates who I felt bridged properly Uh, red Tory and blue Tory values, that being left-leaning conservative and right-leaning conservative values. And that is very similar (coughs) to my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper's model of incremental conservatism, which basically operates as a bridge towards fiscal and social issues on the conservative side. And look, it led to three straight election victories, 2006, 2008, and 2011, where he got a majority government, So that's nearly 10 years of success of a political model. And obviously, you know, things have naturally changed since the last time he was elected in 2011 and when he lost in 2015. But there's no reason why a more balanced approach to conservatism, which is what incremental conservatism, that model, has always stood for, there's no reason why it couldn't be used today to not only bring together conservatives of different stripes, but also Canadians, not just based on the fact that we're having, obviously, problems with COVID-19 in our society, which is part of a global pandemic and something that any political leader, no matter which ideal- part of the ideological spectrum they belong on, would have to deal with, but also people who are worried about taxes, the size of government, their families, kids going back to school, even though, obviously, education deals specifically with provincial rights, and it's part of that through the Constitution, it's still obviously something that matters to federal politicians, because many of them have children who go to school, and many other things in Canada that we worry about on a day-to-day basis. Oh, Aaron O'Toole was the only one of the four candidates, the others being Peter McKay, Leslie Lewis, and Derek Sloan. Mr. O'Toole was the only one who looked at things, I thought, intelligently, rationally, and smartly which I think is really the key thing here, you can have intelligent policy, but you have to use that intelligent policy smartly. And I think throughout this campaign, he and his hardworking team have proven that they are ready not only to lead the Conservative Party, but also to lead Mr. O'Toole, whenever the next election is called, the federal election, to become the next prime minister of this country.
0: (laughs) You talked, Michael, about bridging the gap. Uh, Many people thought that during the campaign that the more Centre candidate was McKay, not O'Toole. Are you saying that's not the case when he's bringing everybody together from both sides, whether it's this party or that party?
2: Peter McKay, unfortunately, is is a nice individual, but no, he did no such thing. And his campaign did no such thing. And part of the problem for that is you have to look at Peter McKay's political record. It's fine to call yourself a centrist or a red Tory or whatever label we want to place on him. The problem, really, unfortunately, is that the party is just not full of left-leaning red Tories. It's full of conservatives of different ideological stripes, including blue Tories, libertarians, uh, sort of independent-minded conservatives who sort of are a mishmash of ideas that go all over the place, etc. The political right, much like the political left, has many different wings and many different strands. And for that reason, a successful political leader has to bring them all together under one party tent. The problem is that many blue Tories and others remember Peter McKay when he was the last leader of the old progressive conservative party. They remember some of his ideas that he's touted, where he, yes, has fiscally conservative positions, but never support them that strongly. We remember the fact that when it came to social issues, he tended to be far more of not a centrist, but even more toward the social liberal at times than anything else. You know, his campaign obviously tried to deny it, and they tried to fight it as much as they possibly could. And that's what you have to do during a campaign. But it was quite clear that most party members of the Conservative Party of Canada did not believe that, or did not feel comfortable enough that Peter McKay's message, while it obviously resonated with you know, left-leaning liberals, some, old, some new Democrats who are a bit disenchanted, the Toronto Star wrote an editorial in favor of him. They see things like that, even though, obviously, a lot of them had already voted by the time certainly the Star editorial came out, and it makes them concerned that the messaging that they believe in or the ideas that most Canadian conservatives cherish on a regular basis were not going to be represented by someone like Mr. McKay. Sure he had lots of experience. And sure, he has lots of ideas, and sure, he has lots of viewpoints. I mean, the, the record is clear on that, but he was not the right type of leader for this party. And for Canadian conservatives, it was not the right type of ideas, ideology, or policy platform to follow. And that's what they decided last night, or shall we say early this morning.
0: So obviously, McKay couldn't bring the Tories together. Uh, will he, would he have done better bringing Canadians together? Uh, you know, that's a different battle beyond the one uh, of last night. Uh, we're, you know, does O'Toole have a better chance of beating McKay? Uh, sorry, does O'Toole have a better chance of beating Trudeau than McKay would have?
2: By far. And, and not just because I said it. He would have by far. Again, it's the it's the crea- recreation of incremental conservatism. Right. A political formula that succeeded in three straight federal elections. And yes, obviously, Stephen Harper was the political leader at that time, my old friend and boss. And naturally, he's a different type of leader than Aaron O'Toole will be or that any of the candidates running will be. I mean, that's, you you know, the political leader always puts his or her footprint on the party they lead. So obviously, there are going to be some differences of opinion and different ways of doing things. But again, because Aaron O'Toole in this leadership campaign was willing to bridge both sides, work on both ends in terms of supporting business ideas and also taking very moderate views on social issues including abortion um, and various other things of that nature, gay marriage and various other things of that nature. When you put all of it together, Aaron O'Toole is espousing a lot of political ideas and views that are, yes, in line with conservative voting behavior, but also in line with Canadian voting behavior, because he cares about families, he cares about businesses, he wants to ensure the size of government is kept to a bare minimum. You know, we don't believe in this party and big government. And he also believes that people, all points of view, should be respected. That includes social liberals, social conservatives. That's the sort of big tent mentality that everyone was touting about, that the conservative leader or the next conservative leader needs But Aaron O'Toole has been saying that literally since day one when his leadership campaign started. So, yes, I always believe that he would be the best candidate moving forward, especially when other candidates who would have obviously given him a run for his money or been very competitive, including Rona Ambrose, Pierre Polievre, and others, chose not to run. Of the four candidates who were there, Aaron O'Toole was head and shoulders above the rest. Hmm.
0: Yeah, wow. Others that sh- that could have run. Holy smokes. Uh, let's talk about Leslyn Lewis and the great stride she made last night.
2: Sure. Yeah, Leslyn Lewis did very well. I mean, look, from a person who really was a nobody in politics, this is a woman who has never held a political seat or political office of any sort. In fact, the only time she ever ran was in a, as an emergency candidate in the 2016 federal election because the conservative candidate who had been nominated in that writing was forced out due to a lot of things that really are a separate issue but both she and the people she was running against there were just a whole lot of irregularities during that whole nomination process so miss lewis stepped in she did admirably she lost but i mean she you know she had very limited time and she tried her best but Leslie lewis proved once again that you know that there can be viable outsiders outside the, po- the political bubble who can obviously resonate with Canadians, resonate with Conservative supporters, and resonate with people who may not necessarily be interested or fascinated with politics, but want to see something new, something fresh. In other words, they're tired of the old politics mentality that they see all the time. Leslie Lewis, you know, certainly espoused conservative and social conservative values very well at times. And you can see that her support base was actually quite good in places such as Western Canada, uh, in Ontario as well. She did admirably to the point <clears throat> where she has basically built herself up as a future star of this political party. And if she eventually wins a seat, and you know, I certainly hope, as many other conservatives hope, that she runs again federally for a seat whenever the next election is called. If she wins, gets her feet wet for a few years and gets more political experience under her belt, which I think was the most lacking thing of her campaign, she'll be a threat for the leadership down the road if she wants.
0: Uh, interesting note from a uh, listener. I'm worried O'Toole is another sheer. How would you answer that?
2: Yeah. Uh, you can't say that everybody who sits in a particular caucus is exactly the same way as the leader before him or her. It doesn't work that way. Everybody is an individual in their own way. Now certainly, Andrew Shearer used some of Stephen Harper's incremental conservatism, conservatism model to try to build his campaign along. But anybody would do so, I mean, or at least a person who is logical in that position. Because if you see a political formula that's successful for several elections, why wouldn't you try to emulate it? But no, Aaron O'Toole is his own man, and I think the biggest difference between the two is that Aaron O'Toole will not be espousing the same sort of social conservative slash religious comments that Mr. Scheer made. And Andrew Scheer had every right to discuss it on on a personal level, because He is a religious Christian, he has every right to be, and he is represented in this party. The problem was he also then talked about issues that did not resonate directly with Canadians, whereas Mr. O'Toole is talking about freedom of thought, freedom of choice, free expression, meaning that everybody under the party wing, as I said before, social liberal, social centrist, social conservative, all of them should be, quote-unquote, respected. That's exactly the sort of language that I think if Andrew Shear had been able to push a bit harder or craft a message that showed that everybody under the tent is going to be represented by him, rather than him making comments and not following along with the narrative long enough for people to feel confident that way, that's a very big difference. So Aaron O'Toole is not Andrew Shear. Aaron O'Toole is not Stephen Harper. Aaron O'Toole is not Sir John A. MacDonald or any other conservative leader. He is his own man, he is his own type of politician, and he will be successful, if, you know, hopefully, in his own right.
0: Michael Tobias has been with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much. Be well.
2: My pleasure. You too.
0: Listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, COVID 19, as we've talked many times on this show, has affected us in many, many different ways. Uh, we remember during the height of this, uh, maybe the, the start of the pandemic, uh, it was all about hand sanitizer and toilet paper. For some reason, uh, people were buying, buying lots of toilet paper. I always thought that COVID-19 was a respiratory illness, not a stomach flu or something like that. But uh, for some reason, remember, the, the store shelves were were empty where the toilet paper used to be for a, for a period of time. Now, thankfully, that's all changed. Common sense has prevailed. The hoarding is pretty much stopped. Uh, but that being said, uh, more of us at home, more buying groceries. We've certainly seen those who uh, run grocery operations, the big grocery uh, companies, have seen an increase in their sales, largely because everybody's sitting at home and making more food as opposed to going out and buying. Uh, their gain has been at the expense of the hospitality industry, which has dropped roughly 30%. So uh, now we're starting to see grocery prices go up. Uh, if you've tried to buy anything, I'm trying to get a, a six by six piece of wood to fix a fence. It's impossible just because of supply chain, Uh, slowdowns and such. Uh, The same appears to be happening in the grocery store business. Uh, Grocery store prices continue to rise during the pandemic. Is there any food that will be immune to this? Let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, lead researcher and professor at Dalhousie University and with us now. Sylvain, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
3: Yes, uh, doing very well. I hope you guys are doing well.
0: Yeah, all good down here. Sylvan, talk about the food chain. Uh, This was always a concern, even going back to the beginning of this pandemic. Give us a bit of an update here. How are we faring right now?
3: I I mean, things have calmed down. Uh, I would say since May, things have calmed down a little bit. Uh, Things are a little bit more predictable, Uh, although uh, it's, it's still messy at times. Uh, there's, there are probably 400 different products, food products, for which uh, soldiers have been reported. But that's due to the fact that, uh, that there's been a lot of recalibration. Grocers are looking into brands they want to carry, brands they no longer want to carry. You probably saw last week's news of ragu sauce exiting Canada, yeah. uh, do you expect more of that to happen? Because carrying 39,000 different food products under one roof is is very expensive, and costs have gone up. So uh, you're going to see a lot of that. So um, fewer choices for consumers in a store. Prices are going up for a variety of reasons, including COVID. It's not just because of COVID, but it's, it's because of COVID. Uh, of, uh, procurement, because of uh, training, uh, uh, because of, of uh, the currency. There's, there's a lot of things going on there, uh, which are, actually is pushing food prices higher. And uh, in e-commerce as well. I mean, a lot of companies are building infrastructure around e-commerce to deliver food at home. So that's, that's probably why you're seeing food prices going up right now.
0: So it's not necessarily anything to do with the supply chain or or prices of of certain products going up.
3: If you see an empty shelf, don't panic. It's not because we're running out of something. It's just because uh, right now uh, some uh, the company or the, the the retailer you're you're visiting uh, is actually looking into occupying that space differently. And so uh, and the, the 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 one thing that I think, has been a little bit underappreciated by consumers is how difficult it's been for the food industry to predict what are we going to be buying every yeah. single week. I'll give you an example. Let's say, you know, July 1st comes comes around, Canada Day. Typically, a food retailer would know how many pork chops they would be selling, uh, how much beef they would be selling, how much beer would be sold, etc because people had traditions. They had family over, friends over. They went to the cottage. I mean, we basically had a routine and that routine made us predictable beasts. Now, because of COVID, everything is out of whack. And so it's very difficult for retailers to predict uh, what we're going to be buying every time we go to the grocery store.
0: So we saw uh, during the height of the pandemic, the early on in the pandemic, when everybody was shut down, uh, that there was pretty much like a six-week uh, shutoff of various supply chains. I mean, obviously, food and such kept moving, uh, but at the end of the day, there's still, you know, there, there's stoppages that are going to uh, affect virtually every industry. Has that passed through the system? Is that over now? So in other words, what we're seeing now is, is no reflection of that.
3: Uh, I, I think we've gone through the worst. Uh, of course, uh, it's uh, it, what the, 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 um, the wild card is the potential second wave and how we will react to that second wave. I actually don't believe that uh, you'll see uh, the lockdowns we've seen before and we, we're not going to see the, an entire sector, the food service industry, restaurants, close. Uh, at 100% overnight, I, I seriously doubt it's gonna happen again, cause, uh, I actually do think that was probably one of the most disruptive things that actually did, uh, impact the food industry. And it has nothing to do with storages. It had everything to do with, uh, reorienting food from one channel to another and repackaging and, and the assortment was very different. Uh, between food service and, and food retail, I think we've gone through that now and so we can perhaps rely on on a, on a more stable food system overall.
0: Uh, we remember at uh, the beginning of all of this when everybody was staying home and and you know the hospitality industry was vir- virtually shut down a grocery store chain profits were up like 20 thirty percent. Uh, because more people were buying product. Is that not enough to offset these sort of COVID-19-based prices?
3: Not necessarily. You see, uh, the agri-food industry, uh, from uh, farming to retail, is a high-volume, low-profit low business, no matter what. Of course, uh, the first couple of quarters of 2020 were a little bit different but we're slowly going back to normal. And, uh, and normalcy is very much about high volume and low profits. Uh, to, to actually make money in a food business, you have to invest a lot. You need a lot of infrastructure, and your overhead is huge. Is, uh, our, your overhead costs are very high. And so that's why, typically, when you actually generate, I don't know, like Loblaws, for example, will generate 47 to $50 billion worth of revenues, well, they probably would post a 1, 1 1.5% profit, which is ridiculous in pharmaceuticals or or in the automotive sector. But in the food industry, that's very, very typical.
0: You talked about, uh, we're talking with Sylvain Charlebois, a professor at Dalhousie University about grocery prices uh, during the pandemic. Uh, you said Sylvan that people's choices are changing. That maybe what they bought uh, before the the pandemic is not necessarily what they're buying after uh, the pandemic. Are, are we seeing a shifting in choices? Are we seeing a shifting in, in in or a pivoting in in what people are actually looking for? What the demand is?
3: Oh, absolutely. Fre- fresh is in. Perishables are absolutely. In vogue right now, yeah. More and more people. So before the pandemic, we saw more people spending more time uh, in the periphery of the store, uh, just because they wanted to eat healthier, they wanted to uh, uh, to lead a healthier life. Now, because of telecommuting, because of the fact that people are actually staying home more, uh, more often, they actually are uh, cooking. And when you cook, you will consume food very differently. And so at the center of the store, there's less traffic, although at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot more traffic. But people, you know, after the mac and cheese and the peanut butter, they went on and and bought other things, other things they can actually process. So even though food prices are actually going up, we actually believe that the average household is spending less money on food just because we're not going out as much. Uh, And frankly, when you go out to a restaurant, you have to pay 40% more to get the same volume of food as if you were to go to a grocery store. So you don't have to do that anymore or as much because you're staying home. So you are saving money even though food prices are going up.
0: Uh, are you finding more people wanting to uh, cook from home, make homemade meals? For example, a lot of the time, you talked about an interesting point about going around the uh, the perimeter of the of the uh, grocery store as opposed to the interior of the grocery store, which I've never noticed before, but it's very true. Um, uh, you know, we see lots of uh, prepared foods, lots of foods you can go in and just grab and leave. Uh, will there be less of that, more of people actually making their own stuff, or... Uh, Again, is there always going to be that demand for people who want to come in, grab something, and leave?
3: It depends where you are. Uh, It's a tough one. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It's a tough one. The biggest biggest factor we're monitoring right now is is telecommuting because if we have, say, 25% of the workforce Uh, working from home, that actually is quite impactful Uh, because when you're home all day, you're not going to be consuming food the same way. You have more time spent at home. You're a different employee. You're a different citizen. You're a different consumer. Uh, And frankly, based on the data we have on telecommuting, a lot of people are thinking about uh, Telecomming more often, and all, many employers. So in the province of Ontario, for example, 22% of employers are actually thinking of allowing their staff to work from home more often after the pandemic. And so you can see that technologies are starting to uh, feel more natural. People are more accustomed to them. And, and perhaps an employer who was reluctant to allow his or her staff to stay home. Now, while they've seen the results and they're a little bit more comfortable now, so at the end of the day, that will actually have a huge impact on the food service industry and also on food retail in terms of the grab-and-goes and and the counter-ready material, or the products that we've seen. I mean, in recent years, we saw that counter explode. I'm not sure anymore it's going to happen.
0: Uh, so like anything, there's just a complete paradigm shift here. Everybody was thinking, well, when are we going to get back to normal? There is no old normal. It's a new normal now, isn't it?
3: I, I actually believe that. I, I, I mean, there are three things that I think are, are changing forever, uh, affecting the food industry. One, food prices, food affordability. Uh, food prices are on the way up. That's going to actually impact families. And because of that, people will make different food choices. Number two, uh, the uh transfer. People leaving the center of the store and buying more fresh products. So you'll see fewer brands, uh, and you'll see sales of pressurables increase. And the third one, which we haven't talked about, is e-commerce. E-commerce was, well... Not a non-story going into COVID, 1.7% of all food sales in Canada uh, were sold online. We actually are expecting that number to triple by this year. So we could actually see sales, online sales exceed $8 billion. Well, with $8 billion, you actually have to eliminate almost 300 grocery stores in Canada to support that kind of volume. So Lots of changes ahead.
0: I remember when the whole online grocery shopping thing started. Really, it's like 20 years ago now, isn't it, when you think about it? And, you know, it it, it got a lot of interest when it initially started, and then it kind of tapered off, didn't it? It's amazing how that has changed post-COVID-19.
3: Oh, absolutely. I I actually do think that... uh, the. If you do, if you do, go back to the grocery store. Take pictures of arrows on the floor and the plexiglass and the masks and 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 the attendant cleaning carts. Because I, I actually do think those things will eventually disappear. Uh, already, you're seeing uh, things loosening up a little bit at the grocery store because people are wearing masks and and people are are very disciplined and and, and they're mm-hmm. and they're complying, um, but those types of artifacts will eventually disappear probably not this year but probably probably next year but what will actually change are, are the way uh, are the ways we actually access the food and of course if e-commerce becomes a, 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 an actual option for a greater number of people well you're gonna see consumers buying directly from farmers you're going to see consumers buying directly mm. for, from Processors directly. PepsiCo is actually selling products directly to consumers now. Gordon Foods, Cisco, Kraft Heinz, you name it. Many, many of these companies are now selling directly to consumers and they didn't before.
0: Wow. And this is going to be a long change. This isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while for people to adjust to this. But uh, yeah, it's pretty clear to see this. uh, The old normal is not the same as the new normal. Sylvain Charlebois has been with his lead researcher. (laughs)
3: That's
0: right. Lead researcher and professor at Dalhousie University, uh, Sylvain Charlebois. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900CHML. The Raptors, man, what a roll this team is on! Uh, many years, is this team still from Toronto? Are they still? In Are they still? Okay? I know that's just not right, is it? Uh, My goodness, Uh, beating the Brooklyn Nets in their first round, Uh, Nick Nurse, the coach and named NBA Coach of the Year. It's uh, certainly been a good time for the Raptors. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. And you can hear him every weeknight right here on CHML. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, you know. Can't complain. I think I'm getting used to this now. I'm realizing It's only taking six months. I know. I'm, I'm finally realizing this is not just going to take a couple of weeks.
4: <laughs> you. Uh, no one ever accused you of not catching on quickly, Josh.
0: There you go. You only have to tell me about 50 or 60 times, and then I get it. Uh, all right. So, uh, you know, many thought that with the Raptors last year was a fluke. And, uh, you know, uh, once the star player was gone, that would be it. Uh, Certainly they've changed a few people's minds here. Uh, Why is this team continuing to do well, and how much of that has to do with their coach of the year? Well,
4: I'll disagree with one little thing you just said. I I don't know that last year a lot of people thought it was a fluke. What I do think, I agree with you. First of all, I think a lot of people didn't expect them to win. I thought they figured Golden State would beat them. But beyond that, they thought that after last year when Kawhi Leonard left, then there's no champ. Now, yeah. now their star is gone. Now they're screwed. And so, yeah, that, that has been a shock to a lot of people that this team has just seemingly continued to roll on. And in fact, you know, no one's going to argue that they're a better team without Kawhi Leonard. But you can make a case that they've adjusted some things and they are, right now anyway, as good a team as they were with Kawhi Leonard, which, again, is, is like nobody in the world would have predicted that. And, yeah, I think a lot of that has to go with what you just said. A lot of that goes to, to Nick Nurse. A lot of that goes to Masai Ujiri. Um, yeah. the, the, the big thing with this... And there's, there's
0: another uh, uh, check uh, box to check off. Finally, all that crap that went on during the playoffs last year and, and the president getting shoved around, you know, that's all been cleared finally.
4: Well, yeah, with the police thing down in Golden State, I mean, there were two. There was the there was the Golden State part owner who gave him a shove from the sideline, and that guy got kicked out and banned. And then there was the yeah, the I remember dude that. And, uh, yeah. But I mean, look, you got to give the credit to the players. I mean, I, that's the that's always the thing. Is, is you know we lose track sometimes that you know we give a lot of credit a lot of places. Ultimately, the players are playing, and they are playing really well. But you know, Nick Nurse. Full marks, full credit for the coach of the year because he has taken a team that doesn't have the absolute superstars that a lot of teams in the league do, the LeBrons or the Kawhis or whomever. And Messiah Jerry who's brought these guys, who's put these guys together and they play as a team. I don't I think you can make a very fair argument that in the NBA right now, no team is a better team than the Toronto Raptors. There may be players that are better. There may be yeah. teams that on a given day will be better. But as far as a, a, a cohesive unit and going deep into the bench where you can go nine guys deep, that is that is pretty unique what they've got going right now.
0: And so uh, why is this coach, why is Nick Nurse the way that he is? Uh, many said that he's not traditional. He'll try things that others would not have tried. What makes this guy the coach that he is. Well,
4: uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that any more than anyone else is. Because if people knew, they would just imitate it. Um, there's a lot of things that I mean. If you watch him, and you know, we've never heard a we've never heard a player from the Raptors even quietly, even off the ice. by the way, that Nick Nurse, you know, the the public view you get of Nick Nurse where he comes out and he's calm yeah. and. He's, yeah, that's, that's, that's not him in the locker room. He's a jerk in the locker room. No, it, We have every reason to believe that the guy you're seeing publicly is the guy you're seeing in the locker room. And boy, there's something to be said, not for every team, but there's something to be said for a guy who is calm, who is composed, who exudes confidence, and who has been successful so the players will then buy in. And And here's the thing that I love the most. It seems as though on the team, and I mentioned they'll go eight or nine players deep, a lot of teams, not just in basketball, in a lot of sports, the biggest thing that's going to cause the biggest problems for a team once they have some success is ego is running rampant. That I'm yeah. the reason we did well. I need more money. I need more time, whatever else. He has seemed to be able to keep all the players on this team happy with their roles and willing and eager to compete to contribute in not necessarily star ways but small things that allow a team to win that's not easy to do that's that's the kind of stuff that makes a coach the coach of the year when you can get that kind of buy
0: what about the injury of uh kyle lowry's uh ankle uh, again didn't seem to slow them down
4: no i know they put up 150 points although i yeah. think by the, game four, down three nothing, Brooklyn was just looking to get out of the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> just let us go home. Um, that ankle is not looking too good. I mean, just an hour ago, they diagnosed it as an ankle sprain, so at least it's not sounding like a tear or a break or anything. Uh, Scott, have you ever badly rolled your
0: ankle? Um, I'm sure I have, but not yeah, that badly I, that sure. I remember it. No.
4: I've done, now, I've never played pro basketball, obviously, but I have done my ankle a couple times in basketball.
0: Sure. I was a big, lanky kid, so absolutely.
4: Yeah, yeah I was a big, lanky kid who happened to be missing the two outside toes on my left foot. It's a long story. Uh, I rolled my ankle a few times. It's unpleasant, <laughs> and it hurts, and it swells, yeah. and it kills to run on. So we'll see. We'll see what Lowry's availability is and what his abilities are, when he comes back but you're going to need him because they're playing boston next and boston is a really really good team
0: all right can't let you go with uh getting your take uh on where we are with the nhl playoffs uh my family is happy to see boston uh at least uh starting to make an effort at this time and doing quite well (laughs) uh what are your thoughts of where we are i've noticed they've still got the can crowd laughter which i'm not happy with
4: uh did you notice did I mention before where the laughter or where the noise comes from? It's the sound effects from EA Sports NHL. Yeah, game. it's
0: from a, it's from video games. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. They've, t- they've literally taken video game sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, Boston all of a sudden looks good again. They looked very mediocre at the early days of the bubble, and now it's like they've said, oh, playoffs, time to play. Um, Tampa, you know, th- th- that series... Would not shock me at all if the team that comes out of that wins the Stanley Cup. Really, um, you know, Montreal is out, which of course causes a lot of people a great consternation. I don't know. It, it, this is—I have suddenly lost a little bit of interest, and I think Scott, it's not about hockey. It's that I was loving the idea of turning on my TV at noon or three o'clock and then yeah. hockey on. Yeah. And now that it's not there, it's like, oh, man, man I got to watch now at night. I, I, I think the NHL should have learned something from these playoffs and has something to look forward to in the next couple of years. Make it like March Madness. You turn on your TV any time of the day, there's hockey. That works.
0: And uh, you know, one game—that's it. As soon as you lose, you're gone. That would certainly no, be interesting. Well, not
4: that <laughs> not
0: Let's that
1: go
4: fun.
0: with that. I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, there's Scott.
4: Something beautiful about turning on your TV in the middle of the day and it's I like, know. wow, there's a game. Yeah.
0: All right, you want to? Who's on the show tonight? Uh, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to choke myself to death here. Um,
4: we're going to talk about dinosaurs. You know that? You ever drive? Yes.
0: Up on highway, I know exactly where you're going here.
4: The guy who owns the. <laughs> that has the dinosaurs is selling, yeah. and if you want to buy a dinosaur, you can buy your own dinosaur. We're going to talk to him on the show tonight.
0: Are you getting a piece of that commission, you know, if you actually get the man's dinosaur sold? Because you could be uh, you know, a big part of this. You could be the I, uh, enabler I here. I
4: ask him for that. I'm more interested in how in the world you decided that your furniture store was going to be marketed by dinosaurs. Because <laughs> this is more sure. Jurassic Park.
0: Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show Sports Columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Make sure you're listening to the show tonight. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime, you too, Scott. E learning. How has it how will it be different in September compared to the way it was in the spring? We'll have that discussion when we return. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were talking to the kids and like, you know, how you feeling about going back to school and all that sort of thing with the pandemic and such. And, you know, Kurt's like, Dad, that's like 20 days away. Come on. Do do I have to talk about this now? It's like watching the back to school ads on TV. Come on. Okay. Uh, anyway, obviously, this school year, uh, not like others in the past, it'll be uh, it'll be very unusual and staggered, and as we all try to get used to what is happening and uh, the new world of going back to class uh, during a pandemic. And of course, we remember what happened as the school year ended last year, and all of a sudden, everything changed uh, right around March break time. And the next thing you know, it was online learning, and so on and so forth. As 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 everybody just tried to scramble to to try to make something work. Uh, now, obviously, we've had some time, and uh, uh, well, a little bit more time to try to figure out as far as e learning what is going to go on. As far as protocol and processes, those are going to change. Uh, I'm sure drastically, even between now and the start of school and even the first week or two uh, that school is uh, is open. it's everyone's gonna have to be nimble to make this work. that's for sure. Uh, but uh, lots uh, were questioning the quality of online learning as we came out of the last school year uh, and have been promised that going in, uh, it's certainly a lot different. I know my uh, my boy took uh, some uh, lessons just to continue on over the the course of the summer, and uh, we were quite impressed of of what we saw and and how different it actually was compared to. Uh, what they were doing at the end of the school of the year last year to talk about online learning and how this is changing moving forward let's bring in Charles Pascal professor of applied psychology and human development Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto and Charles is with us now Charles thank you for the time hope you're doing well good to uh, good to hear your voice Scott so what are we going to see come September? Uh, I remember in uh, as the school year ended last year, or as, and we we tried to get on into online learning. There was uh, a lot of inconsistency. What some kids were getting were very it was a lot different than others and such. Again, as I mentioned, uh, my my uh, my twelve year old now thirteen year old was was in the midst of a of a summer program for a couple of weeks, and we were quite impressed of as what we saw there. It was quite a bit different than than the actual school year. So uh, how confident are you in what we're going to see online as this school year starts?
5: Well, I think, first of all, I think during the uh, the end of the school year, thanks to uh, teachers and educational leaders at the uh, grassroots level, they did the very best they could. But as you suggest it was uh, stressful for everybody. Um, I I suspect your son's experience uh, might have been a course in civics uh, or careers. Uh, which has been a kind of a favorite online uh, course during the summer for
0: uh, students. actually one, actually one was literature or one was uh, English and one was uh, math, and they were that's both two rich. weeks long. They were both two well, weeks long.
5: Well, that's good to hear. Uh, one of the one of the problems as we looked uh, nervously at uh, at how uh, virtual learning will take place, is the fact that as early as March, there actually should have been then a major investment in supporting, uh, teachers as well as students, especially those who, uh, live in a have not situation at home regarding digital supports and, uh, multiple families trying to crowd in on, the uh, uh, on the, uh, the internet, even high speed. We we should have then uh, been proactive about developing the capacity for uh, virtual learning. Um, uh, I think this, uh, the minister, um, uh, Uh, We we knew what the three options would be, and I think we squandered both uh, consultation with the grassroots as well as being proactive about uh, capacity build. So to your question, um, I I think uh, it's going to be uh, hit and miss. I think your son's experience will be reflected uh, with many teachers who are ahead of the curve. Uh, But many of my colleagues at the U of T and, and my colleagues at McMaster uh, as well as those in the elementary secondary, uh, virtual learning, virtual teaching is not the same as uh, being in a circle or a face-to-face right. where you can adapt to individual differences, create active uh, projects and things like that. So if great teachers uh, look at the, the kind of generic things required for effective teaching and learning, which is here's some information, let's do some problem solving, here's some feedback, uh, you can work in small groups using virtual learning. Um, it can be very sophisticated, very intimate, and very effective. I, I just think we haven't had time to build the capacity uh, as much as we uh, we could have and as much as we're going to have to do in the future.
0: That being said, Charles, is that fair? Because how did we get to where we are? I mean, again, what I saw was a great difference than what we saw in the fall. And, you know, at the end of the day, do we don't really have a lot of choice here, do we? No,
5: I think, I mean, here's the, here's the ultimate irony. And I know, uh, you know, you need to see me as that nonpartisan former deputy minister, Scott, when I say these things. <laughs> I know. Uh, look, um, the minister and the premier are quite right in saying, wouldn't it be great to have uh, everybody back face to face in schools? Nobody can deny that is the objective. But their approach has been so confusing and so stress inducing. That up to thirty to fifty percent of parents are actually keeping kids away from that face to face because the government's approach to this has not been very effective. So, uh, who has done it
0: right, Charles? Who's doing it better?
5: Oh well, uh, Denmark uh, is—you know—Denmark is always used as the uh, uh, as the real standard regarding how they've planned. How they've used... Uh, what about
0: in our use... country? What about in Canada? Is anybody... No, you know, it's don't always don't easy be... to compare... It's always easy to compare to another country who a lot of the people haven't even been to. So no. is there anybody in Canada who's doing a, a, a better job? Is there anybody doing it right?
5: Well, you know, it was uh, BC that basically first posed the notion that we could have a little bit of staggered uh, beginning. The minister in Ontario said, absolutely not, absolutely not, and now finally you know giving enough so there are problems charles
0: are you really being fair here come on i've we Stop cover the press scott conferences and, and every day and every and, day he said he's flexible here so again scott, at, i don't know
5: I'll, t- I'll tell you what scott uh every time you and i have a conversation i know uh you you act as an, you drink the kool-aid and you act as an apologist <laughs> for the the worst approach to implementation on any file especially education so if you, want to, if you want to follow the evidence regarding the importance of two meters, 15 kids or less in elementary school, and a whole bunch of other things, when this, this minister says he's flexible, when in fact he hasn't been flexible, it's only when the polling goes down that he starts to have another presser uh, to follow the lead of local leaders who are telling him uh, this isn't going to work. So, you know, uh, you either want to listen to the evidence, or you want to act as an apologist for this government you can take your choice
0: well who's i'm just asking who's doing this right across the
5: across the country uh, there are there are provinces that understand that social distancing is number one for elementary schools and two meters is two meters and 15 kids or less is is uh, is what's required and so we have provinces that are following that evidence and when this government says they're following the best medical experts in the world that is simply not true they are not following the sick kids report that they like to hide behind
0: no I again I you know everybody is you know there's a lot of people who are echoing what you're saying but I, you know I I don't see another province that's necessarily doing it better
5: well we're no wor- we're no worse than anybody else it's not a bumper sticker I want to send home to uh, uh, you know to, to my friends uh, you know, either, so this either just isn't
0: we, this just isn't isn't our provincial government. This is the provincial governments of all stripes across the country.
5: It doesn't matter, Scott. We are talking. About no, I'm just Australia. asking that
0: it, it's 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 the it's it's all the governments across all the provinces of every stripe that haven't got this right. Most
5: most provinces have done something
0: this minister has not
5: done. They have collaborated with the grassroots. This government is led by this minister is a I know best and it's top-down, and he does not listen and consult with the grassroots. That is a matter of record. You may not like it, but but everybody who's at the grassroots in all of our school boards know that to be a fact.
0: All right, Charles, we're plumb out of time. Uh, Charles Pascal has been with us, Professor Applied Psychology and Human Development, Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well.
5: Take care, Scott. Time to breathe. (laughs) (laughs)